Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Ange Bell, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Hiya, Jeff. Good to see you. Yeah, it's great to have you. So I haven't known about your work for very long, but when I discovered it, I was quite enamored with it. I mean, you're you're an exceptional painter, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with my work, but I do portraits as well, so naturally I'm drawn to what you do. And uh, But one of the things, we'll talk about your work later. I want to learn about you first, but I just got to tell you right off the bat, one of the things that I absolutely love about your work is you've got a really unique uh, painterly painting style that that sounds really redundant. The way you apply paint is really unique. You got you have really interesting brushwork. So I'm anxious to learn a little bit about where that came from. But first, I kind of want to learn about you, how you got into painting, just a little bit about your background. Sure. Well, thank you for the lovely compliments. This is going to go well if you start something <laughs> yeah. to go by. Um, yeah. So. Uh, where to start? Um, I guess I was always that kid that was drawing. Um, and even though art has always been my my main concern, everything centered around art, it was never really viewed as a, a kind of viable career option. So even though I studied art, went on to university and uh, studied a degree in fine art and then a master's in fine art, I specialized in sculpture. Um, and I wasn't really sure of, you know, where to go with it, possible career directions. And of course, whenever you come out as a student, you've got a whopping great debt. Um, so yeah, I went and did proper jobs. I was a teacher for a while. I spent most of my time being a youth worker. Mm. Um, and then it was only whenever my son started primary school that I had the opportunity then to work part-time and get into the studio. Really? So why did you study art if you didn't feel like it was a viable career option? I knew what I didn't want to do and I didn't want to get a proper job. Um, and, you know, I was really lucky at high school. I had a teacher, Jane mainly, and she basically said, you're going to art college and you know convinced my parents that that was the route to take and so that's why that opportunity um came about and so i just ran with it but i really didn't have i think i don't know i think a lot of people um who you know are my age especially in ireland as well art wasn't necessarily a career option but it was something people were allowed to do for a certain length of time um, and Wait, what so do you I mean, was afforded what do you mean that by opportunity that for a certain length of time. So yeah, you got to study art, but then you were expected to go and you know be a proper adult afterwards and have a serious job and do the nine to five. So everyone in I art think... school in Ireland, this is where you're from, Ireland. I'm assuming. Mm, yeah. Okay, so everyone that you knew in Ireland that was in art school with you, they just assumed that this was their time to play, 
and and mm. live their dreams out while they're in school, but they all fully intended to get a job afterwards and not Yeah, be a I think yeah, I think people in the graphics department or the textile department, it was was different. You know, you had yeah. job prospects. Um, I think out of the people that I went to university with, there is one who's regarded as a, a, a serious artist and has a brilliant reputation in, in Ireland. Um, and one that does, um, I would just say, like community art. So works with different uh uh, say school or youth center you know or, or different age groups and yeah carries out different projects but other than that there's nobody that I've you know was in my cohort that has has made it big mm. um and I don't think there was an expectation that they would which is really weird yeah I mean I'm I mean, trying to think back we... to my college years do you mind me asking when you were born mm. Uh, 1975. Oh, we're about the same <laughs> so age. So a while ago. <laughs> I was born in 74. So uh, so we're pretty much the same age. So I know mm -hmm. what you mean. Uh, and, I, and I have a similar experience in that um, as far as I know, I'm the only artist doing it full time that I graduated with. Or I didn't graduate, but everyone else graduated and I went on to do it full time. But but I don't remember anyone feeling like it was their, it was just a step to get, or just like, this is my time to paint and then I will get a job. I feel like when I was in school, everyone believed they would become a painter. It just didn't happen. <laughs> 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 so that's what I find interesting is that, is that the mentality was a little bit different. Even though we followed yeah. the same trajectory, it was, you guys were a little more realistic maybe. Uh, I think maybe we just weren't encouraged to to dream. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So, how did your teacher in high school convince your parents to let you study art? Was it part be, partly because of that culture where you get to do this thing for a time and then you get a serious job? I think my so I, I'm the only artist in the family, so there there wasn't anybody that had gone before me to to prove whether this was going to be a disastrous route or you know a highly successful route so you know i got to to be the one that ventured out alone into <laughs> into the art world mm -hmm. and i think i think because one i'm so stubborn but two my teacher said well actually this is what she's really good at and how can you not let her have a crack at it basically so mm. i owe her a hell of a lot um yeah. i think my parents were really worried but i also think that they they just thought well she's going to be a real pain if we don't let her do what she wants to do yeah so they maybe went for the easy route but so so everybody in your cohort then thought they were going to be be successful well i mean i can't get in all their artists. heads you know but i think that the people that i hung out with in college i think we all expected to at least try I don't, I mean, I don't think any of us planned on getting a job afterwards. Let me put it that way. But I also think that most of us recognized that it was going to be hard, if not impossible, you know? Uh, but as you put it, maybe we were more dreamers. I, I think that the people I hung out with at least wanted to give it a shot, right? It wasn't, they didn't see it as just their time to play and, and then then just once they're done, it's just inevitable. It's time to get the grown-up job. And uh, at least that's not how I perceived my friends to think, but 
Who knows, really? I don't know that we ever really talked about it. Um, but did you see what I found interesting? I was just having a chat with Tom Senna, um, who does the Drop podcast, and I was speaking to his uh, group of students recently. And, you know, I was saying, oh, my God, you know, I don't think I ever had any career advice elements to my whole time at uni. I don't think anybody sat me down and went, you know, you're actually going to need some maths so that you can uh, balance your books. You know, you're going to have to be an accountant. You're going to have to be a salesperson. Oh, no, we never you got know. that either. You know, so I think that's maybe I'm having a, a bit more of a negative view on it. But I just thought nobody treated it like it was going to be a career. No, my you teachers, <laughs> you know, this seems like a contradiction, but my teachers all told us it wouldn't it wasn't possible. But I don't know, maybe it's just the people that I hung out with in school. We all just, maybe we were just the dreamers. Maybe it wasn't the school culture. Maybe it was just the mm. few friends I had in college that we all were optimistic. I don't know. But yeah, my teachers would always tell us, no, you can't make it in this field. You can't make it. It's not possible. But that's because they weren't mm. making it in the field, right? They were, they were teaching at a yeah. university and not selling paintings on the side and just painting as a hobby. And so their, their, their perspective was that art wasn't possible as a career. That was their perspective. That was their reality. So I understand why they would mm. tell us that, but, um, you know, the few of us that I remember hanging out with, we, for some reason had this idea that we would be the exception, you know? Um, so, I mean, don't, I don't get know. me wrong. We all thought we were great. You know, we're so yeah. wrapped up in our own delight, but it never occurred to us you know, <laughs> yeah, that we could that's actually make money and have a career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when your kids started in primary school and then mm. you started, you started working part-time and painting, mm. at what point did it start to feel like a viable career where you actually are like, wow, I can actually make some money doing this? I don't think it was was even about the money. Basically, uh, I look at my my life now at this ripe old age and reflect back at, at different times, and I just think what I've done at different different stages of my life. I mean, the masters, I was definitely buying myself time. I bought myself time to create and to to have great experiences in art. And then I look at the time whenever my son started school and I was working part time and then being around for, for him. But also I just thought, well, actually, this is this is bought time now. I'm working part time. I'm giving up the potential to have a full time job to mm -hmm. be with my son for the times that he's around. But also I have to make use of this extra bonus time that mm -hmm. I have. So it wasn't necessarily about making money. I saw it as, as kind of bought time to, to do something great, to kind of feed my soul a little bit. And I didn't, I didn't think, well, this is a, you know, a return to, to the art world or anything grand like that. Um, or even that money could be made from it. I just knew that that it was an important part of my life. I think because I dipped in and out of art for so many years, you know, I didn't really continue on my practice because I had to earn money and pay off student debts and mm -hmm. do all those other important life things. But um, yeah, I just saw it as a treat. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I don't think any of us do it for money or we would have done something else. Yeah. But I guess what, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, and, I, and I'm not, that's not to say you can't make money. What I mean is mm. the whole world tells you it's not practical as we just talked about. So why would yeah. you choose it if you were thinking about making good money? Mm. But you've obviously accomplished some things because I was reading on Instagram on your bio that you're part of the Royal Institute of Oil Painters and the Royal Society of Painters and um, your work is magnificent. So you must be having experiencing some success. Well, I guess so not so much about it's when I say when did you realize you could make money at this? What I'm really asking is when did you realize that this could be more than just a hobby to fill your time? Mm. Or is it still is that still primarily what it is? Oh, no, no. I mean, but that was in the early days. Right. And yeah, just to correct you. So I'm a member of the contemporary British portrait painters, but the Royal Institute of Oil Painters or, you know, all that, all the ones listed there, they've all been past shows that I've taken part in. Oh, OK. Gotcha. So the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition that. Still, but, um, still awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I think that it's. It took a couple of years because I hadn't painted before. So it it took me a couple of years to um to get to grips with paint and to Wait a understand. Minute. So you what didn't paint doing. in college? In in university? No. What did oh no, you so sculpted? For, you sculpted, that's right. Yeah. So uh -huh. I think I spent about a week in the paint department um because I was just chomping at the bit to get back into the sculpture. So why did you <laughs> go to paint department. when your kid went to school? Why not just pick up sculpture where you left off? Well, I think that fits in with the idea of it being bonus time. You know, I'd spent many years making sculpture and I love sculpture. I think it's fantastic. But I saw it as, you know, the bonus time. So I thought, what haven't I done before? What's going to oh. what's going to be interesting or exciting? And I thought, well, I haven't painted. So yeah, just took it from there. And so I looked at YouTube videos, books, you know, looked at people's art that I really liked and and thought, how on earth did they do that? And then went and had a crack at it. So you're basically self-taught. Yeah. I mean, none of us are really self-taught because you learned from a YouTube video, but but you self-directed teaching. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I think I think that's fed into my style mainly because I haven't had you know a very rigid painting background. I think I tend to be a bit more experimental and irreverent in my approach. Mm -hmm. I'm sure some proper painters would be horrified with. <laughs> oh, with I want to hear more about things. what is improper about your work in a bit here. <laughs> Let's not forget that. I want to know about the improper. Uh, so tell me about your life now. You said it took a little bit of wa a little while. Are you working part time still as a painter now? Are you working full time? I mean, what's your oh. parent situation? Yeah, no, so I've been full-time for quite a number of years now. Um, and it happened happened gradually, but also it was it was my realization that actually I could I could make it my full-time job, you know, mm -hmm. next to next to parenting. And yeah, so I always have a couple of different work streams on the go at the same time. Um, so I have, you know my commission work the portraits i have which um, you must have a bunch more. because your your instagram says closed for commissions yeah so you're pretty backed up 
yeah so i just every now and again i open them um and then close them pretty quickly <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> because, congratulations um, yeah well thank you but you know it's a it's a double-edged sword one i really love working on the commissions you know and they they help me fund the the rest of my practice but it's also time away from the the work that you're really driven to create mm -hmm. you know where your ideas are where you can really experiment and throw everything at it um but yeah so i like the commission work but also i'm quite um a lot more balanced in my approach now, shall we say. So I'm not going to take on a year's worth of work. I just think that's that's lunacy for me anyway. Mm -hmm. That's just a whole big pile of stress. And so I open it up so that I've maybe got three, four months of work at, at a time and then close it again. I just think, yeah, it's a lot less stressful. And then, of course, run the, and in parallel with that is the, the gallery work, um, which, yeah this year that's the focus um and then the affordable pieces on instagram people go oh you should be charging more for that and i think you don't understand my business model <laughs> you know yeah. this isn't i'm not i'm not a, a hobby painter this is my job i'm a professional artist and i take it seriously and what these affordable pieces are are basically calling cards you know i've had many people that have bought the little five by 10 pieces, you know, most people will be quite comfortable in spending, you know, a couple of hundred pounds on, on something, on a piece of art that they've only seen on a screen. You know, you push them over the 500 pound mark, the thousand pound mark, and people aren't going to go for it. But if they buy a little piece of your work and they take that punt, then they realize the quality and the standard of work. And then they're more likely to return for commissions um, or then buy the bigger pieces of art later on. So it's that. Did you come up with that model. on your own, that business plan? That's brilliant. It kind of, yeah, it kind of developed. And I just thought, you know, I've had, I've had time to work this out. <laughs> yeah. And I just need to figure out what works for me. Um, I need to be excited about going into the studio. I want to create the work that I want to create. I also need to make a living, but you know, it should, it should all be a joyful thing. Hmm. Well, because the reason I find that brilliant is because I've interviewed so many people that make their living mm. on social media practically. Mm. And it's fascinating to me because it's so different than my career. Whereas mine, I, I have, I sell like one painting a year and that's my whole mm. career because they're big and, you know, like I'm working on a 10 footer right now. And so it's such a different thing. And I'm like, I can't even imagine selling something like this on Instagram. Like who would look at a picture of one of my paintings <laughs> and then drop that amount of money on Instagram. And what you're telling me is there's there, you've kind of worked the system a little bit. You're like, no, that's not what mm. you do. What you do is you sell them yeah. the little stuff, you convert them, and then they trust that your work is good in person. Then they spring for the big stuff. That's brilliant. I've never would have thought of that. Yeah. But yeah. then also, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you, as, as an artist, as a, as a professional who is out in their own, you have to figure this stuff out. You have to, 
to make things work for you. Otherwise, you just it's not going to work. Yeah, it's stop. But also, European things take. You know, you're talking about ten foot piece of you know piece of work, and you just think, well, how many of my little ones would fit into that one piece of yours? So, oh, and you're yeah, probably spent about a year creating that work, aren't you? Yours yeah, are no, it takes a year. Detailed. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Wow, that's really interesting. And uh, I, I'm definitely going to have to have my students listen to this because I was just having a conversation with them, and as you know, because we're the same age. It's changed so much since when I left school in 2002, which is late for someone born in 74. I was kind of a late bloomer, but I left school in 2002 and started my career. And it was just, there was no social media. My whole exposure to art outside of what was local in local galleries and museums was Barnes and Noble. And I can think of just a handful of living artists. Like there was an odd Nerdrum book and maybe a David LaFell mm. book on the shelf in Barnes & Noble. So my whole view of the world outside of Salt Lake City and dead artists mm. was Odd Nerdrum and David LaFell. Like, like they're the only other realists living <laughs> on the planet. The point I'm getting to is back then it was just, you paint a painting and all you could do was put it in a gallery and they sell it, that's it. Mm. Now my students are graduating and they have so many options for a career it's ridiculous and they're like so how do you make a career in this jeff i'm like i mean i know how i did it i don't know how you're gonna do it you're gonna have to get creative i don't there's i mean if, if you asked me 20 years ago i would have told you there's only one way to do it but now there's like a thousand different business plans that are possible with uh the technology that's out there now and you've just told us one of them so that's great but but isn't that so exciting i think that's why so many artists you know, the, that we went to, to uni with that didn't make it because it was, you painted something, you put it in a gallery and it sold or it didn't. And then you were, you were out, right. You know, you, you didn't make it into that little kind of art loop of who was successful in, in your community and your neighborhood at the time. And I just think, you know, the, the way young people, <laughs> I'm sound really old. The way, the way um, those whippersnappers, young artists, <laughs> yeah, those whippersnappers. Now, the way um, young artists are approaching things. You know, some of them have a huge amount of followers on Instagram. They're not dependent on the degree or that one gallery. Mm -hmm. They've got so many options open to them, and I think that's incredibly exciting. And I think you know, you develop different skill sets when you work with what you're given you know and i think we worked in different ways with what we were given but at the same time everything that is available to young artists now is just so exciting but also it's an absolute minefield because you have to be good at everything yeah You've i don't got like to it be good at, you know. <laughs> i'm less optimistic <laughs> <laughs> yeah but also i think it it means also that your work is not necessarily more more disposable but i think you've a lot more competition and also you know there are various different trends and if your work fits in with whatever's happening this month then great you're in but if it doesn't fit the look of what's happening next month then you're out 
Let me just take a minute to plug my sponsor, Rosemary Brushes. These are not Rosemary Brushes. I'm a brush junkie. So when I go to an art supply store, I have to admit on occasion, I will be tempted to buy a brush, even though it's not from Rosemary, but it's rare. And here's the reason why it's rare, because this is what happens to other brands. This is a basically a new brush. I bought it last summer. And this one right here, a good brand, supposedly, the hairs are coming, literally coming right out. This brand, also a well-known brand, got this last year, already the ferrule busted off. Now I could glue it on, but why should I have to glue it on? Brushes are expensive. This needs to be crimped better. So why do I love Rosemary brushes? Two reasons. One, because they're an amazing company and their brushes are freaking high quality. This brush from Rosemary is a good example. It's gorgeous, it's tight, it's well-made, and it'll last forever if you take care of it. The other reason is because Rosemary is an amazing family-owned company. They provide amazing service. They're awesome people to work with, and you can't go wrong by buying their product. So for your next painting, head over to rosemaryandco.com and pick up some more brushes. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's got its own drawbacks, but I definitely think it's exciting. I wonder if there is more competition. I don't know. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I've thought a lot about this because I genuinely don't know. I've, there's two ways of looking at that in my mind. There's more competition because more artists have access to the public through social media. Mm -hmm. So you might think there's more competition between artists because we're all so easily accessible. But another way of looking at it is what's happening is galleries are the ones that are feeling it, not so much the artists. I mean, because now the, the galleries have to compete with the artists more than the artist has to compete with the artist in my mind. Because there's always mm -hmm. been artists out there. It's just that if I wanted to see a Nashville artist, I had to go to Nashville. You know what I mean? Yeah. But now the gallery in Nashville that would have been waiting for me to show up and look at a Nashville artist, now they have to freak out because I can just Google Nashville artist mm -hmm. and or look on Instagram for artists in Nashville. Not that I don't know why I would do that, but you get my point. And uh, so I kind of wonder if it's if it really is so much a a competition thing that we need to concern ourselves with um, or not. I don't know. I think all, with regards to the galleries, I think the whole pandemic, I know over in the UK, it definitely shifted the the whole gallery experience. Mm -hmm. um, I think because everything went online, then it really did shift. And I think in some respects, it's got rid of the, the lazy galleries who, you know, would take their cut and go thanks very much and not really put a lot of effort into um promoting your work outside of their actual physical space and i think now that people are able to do it themselves yeah, yeah the the good ones are surviving i work with a couple of really great galleries who you you know they're working for you and it might not necessarily result in sales but you know that they're excited by your work, they're promoting your work, they're introducing your work to a new audience. Um, and that's fun, that's that's worth the money, you know. Let's face it, I've exhibited with a gallery recently and made the sale and then they took 50% and the VAT on top. And that wasn't <laughs> taken into consideration, me framing the work and then, you know, couriering the, the work back and forward. And you just think, 
it's so ridiculous. much money. I know. And I also think I didn't I didn't see my work heavily promoted by them. So why am I paying you that money? Well, that's what I'm saying. That's why I think galleries are the ones who are really suffering right now. Not so much. I I, I kind of wonder if this accessibility that we all have is actually helping helping each of us because it's raising awareness for in in the case of artists like you and I for the relevance of realism let's say and mm. um and how popular it is you know you see the following of all these realists on Instagram and it gives legitimacy to them so in a way mm. it kind of bolsters all of us and the only one left is the people who used to represent us and talk us up to, to give us credit. We don't need necessarily need that kind of um, bolstering from the gallery anymore. You know, there's a funny story. <laughs> oh my gosh, this cracks me up. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. So there's a museum here in, in the Salt Lake area that they own a couple pieces of my work, but, and we were visiting the museum, me and my students and I, it's great because it's like, it's called the Springville Museum of Art. I'll give them a plug. They're a beautiful museum in this beautiful Spanish building about 50 miles from Salt Lake City. And um, they have this great Russian collection that's just gorgeous. And then they have lots of other beautiful work from various places, but it's mostly focused on Russian. But then they also have tons of local Utah artists in there and mm -hmm. really some really stellar work. So we were there looking at all this collection and they have this one hall that's portraits and it's portraits or self-portraits of artists from Utah from way back the 1800s, which in Ireland is like yesterday, but to us, that's a long way back. <laughs> but, and uh, I'm walking through this hallway and I say to my students, I want to get my self-portrait in here. I mean, how cool would that be to be one of the artists on there? So one of my students who's older than me, um, and I say that because, you know, it wasn't a kid walking up to the desk. So she looked serious. She just took it upon herself. I didn't even know. She took it upon herself to find the director of the museum and say, hey, you should have a Jeff Hines self-portrait in here. So this is what's hilarious. So the director of the museum call, called and emailed her as though she were my representative and started trying to set up meetings to meet with her about a quote unquote, acquiring a Jeff Hines self-portrait. And, <laughs> and then she's like, as she said, she, you know, kind of told me about it and thought it was humorous. And um, I emailed them and said, hey, I found out you want one of my self-portraits. Let's get, let's talk about it. And then she, they emailed her again and said, hey, it sounds like Jeff's interested. Let's set up a meeting. They're totally going around me <laughs> to get to her. And I just find it hilarious how easy it is. She just basically became my rep and didn't even try. It's That's like, fantastic, it's, it's serious. She didn't even try. All she did was go, hey, you should have a Jeff Heinart. And all of a sudden she's got a business dealing my art. Like it just happened that, that easy. Fantastic. It's hilarious. <laughs> What's her cut though? I know, no. She, fortunately, she's not going to ask for one. <laughs> but I was, it's just, I just find it interesting how, easy it is if the art is good how easy it is to just go up to somebody and say hey you should have x and then take 50 mm. percent <laughs> you know what i mean sure. anyway totally i mean i guess it's related but it just when you were talking about mm. how much you have to do putting the frame on shipping it painting it and then splitting mm. it right down the middle 
it just mm-hmm. uh, it reminded me of that because it just reminded me of how easy it would have been for her if she wasn't a friend to just go, hey, I mm-hmm. just earned 50% by walking up to the desk and saying, hey, you should have a Jeff Hine painting. Exactly. It's crazy. <laughs> She's great, though. Send me on her details. Oh, my after. gosh. I kind of want to hire her, actually, because she must have a, I mean, it must be her face or something. I don't know. But isn't it, doesn't it go, I, I always kind of remind myself, I've got little phrases that, that I use as little prompts in life. And one of the ones is, if you don't ask, you don't get. Mm-hmm. And it's really true. And I don't know why, why more of us don't. I mean, yeah. is that, is that typical? I don't know. I kind of wonder if it would have been different if I had gone up and said, hey, you should have one of my mm. portraits. If somehow mm. her walking up as my representative legitimized me in some way. Yeah. That, should, that like would be an interesting staff. social experiment. <laughs> to get 10 <laughs> artists and 10 random people and have them walk up to some significant collector or museum and just see mm. if there's a difference between when the artist walks up and requests it and when a rep of the artist walks up and requests it. If there is mm. if there is a difference. Yeah. That would be an interesting like experiment. In the, but did you have also, I mean, I, I certainly did. In the early part of my career, it was like, God forbid you ever approach a gallery by yourself, you know? <laughs> it yeah. was like you have to contact them, go, sorry, uh, sorry to bother you, you know, and would you mind looking at this? And you had to, to go and be really humble. Mm-hmm. That was the, that was the, the rule. Quietly. But are, have, um, have, are you familiar with Joseph Todorovic? No, no. Okay. So he's a California based artist. He, I actually interviewed him. So if you're interested in learning about him, mm. I interviewed him maybe a year ago and he's, he's an exceptional painter. Well, Frankly, I think everyone I interview is, or I wouldn't interview him, but <laughs> they, he's, he's another one of the exceptional painters I've interviewed. And his story is really interesting because he's, a, he's, I wouldn't call him shy, but he's one of those people that thinks a lot, speaks little. Like mm. he's, uh, he's very articulate, but he's not a loud person. He's very reserved. Mm. And um, at least that's my impression of him. Maybe he'll correct me on that, but I've spent some time with him and that's how I perceive him. But uh he and i are about the same age as well and we i was in this gallery in laguna beach california and the dealer told me about how joseph todorovich approached him because we 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 ended up in the same gallery at about the same time except i got in there in a different way than he did that's that's not related but he my dealer said that joseph todorovich came in with a painting under his arm and that that he the dealer was really pissed off because that's not how it's done you know in quotes that's not how it's done you got to follow the process as you put it and uh and joseph comes off as this he, he's not a big guy either he's maybe like five eight five nine lean mm-hmm. you know not a big guy and so and and my dealer is like six foot two 230 pound major presence of a man and so you just got, I'm trying to, I'm just describing them because you kind of imagine this whole scenario, right? This little guy with a painting under his arm, this pissed off 230 pound, you know, intimidating art dealer is, is like, get out of my gallery kind of attitude toward him. I don't know if he actually said that, but that's what he said he felt like to me. Mm. And he did ask, he did tell him, this is not what you do. You want to come in the gallery, you have to send your work in and, uh, or something to that effect. And then Joe just, 
turned his painting around and the dealer mouth dropped wide open and they had a deal that fast. It was like, yeah, that's not the process unless you really want the art, right? And so he broke the rules and won on that one. So yeah, nice. I, but I get what you're saying, but I always tell my students, I'm like, hey, if your work's good enough, what are they gonna do, turn you away? And say, no, mm. you're amazing, but you didn't follow the process, see ya. So I, I always tell them just walk in anyway, just break the process, but I hope that's not bad yeah. advice. <laughs> <laughs> but also sometimes rules are made to be broken, aren't they? Mm -hmm. You know, I think if, if you play it safe and just trundle along and do the same thing, you know, same thing as everybody else, then you're gonna get the same results as most people, which yeah. is a no. Yeah. So you got to lose. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so before we get into your art, tell me, I'm anxious to do that, but tell me a little bit more what your life is like today. What are your studio habits like? What is a week, what does a week look like in, in your life as a painter? Um, so at the minute, I am between studios. We moved to the countryside about a year ago and we have been living in a building site ever since. So it's a really good job I work small. So I've, I've got a little desk set up um, and, you know, little workspace, which works perfectly well. So yeah, I have, um, I have eyes on a, conver a conversion, but I think it's gonna take a bit of time to get that set up. But so, yeah, so I work from home, which is great um, and yeah, I just see the kids off in the morning, get stuck straight into it. And I think, I think because I, in the early days, I got used to painting around the kids. So I would do the school drop off, come back. And then I knew I had that window of opportunity until like two thirty, three o'clock, whenever I had to go and pick them up. So I got into the habit of using my evenings then to prime boards or, you know, to sit and contemplate what I want to do, what I want to achieve, where I'm going to go with things, how I'm going to plan out my week. And I've kept those habits up then. So I, I basically know what roughly my week is going to look like. Um, and either I'll, so I've got my Monday to Friday and that's, that's definite studio time. So I'll either divide it up into commission work or maybe I'm working towards an exhibition um, or, you know, last year I was focused on trying to, to get my work out there as much as possible. So I had lots of the little pieces um, and that was basically just to, yeah, get my work out there, get it seen. It was Instagram friendly, which means that you get the engagement. Um, but this year, so I've had a bit of an easy start this year. I've decided not to do the new year, new me and traumatize myself, mm -hmm. kind of belly flop into the, into the year. So um, I've been planning out what I want to focus on, looking for references, priming up a few things. So it's been quite easy this week. But next week, there are a few deadlines coming up for open submissions. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm going to be working on. Open submissions and shows? Yeah, so there's the Royal Society of Portrait Painters. Um, they're based in the centre of London, the Mal Galleries. And so they've got, um, you know, a really good reputation. 
I think, you know, just as much as we've been talking about Instagram, I think it's important to get your work into the reputable exhibitions and be seen by the right people and with the right people in the right environment. Um, and so I have open submissions that I have on the, the calendar and that I work towards. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's good practice to keep as many options open as possible um, for me anyway. Hmm. But, so um, could you list those up? And this is a weird question, but I'm just curious because you seem like you have your hands in a lot of stuff. So could you list some of those options? So you've said, I'll, I'll list a few of them that I've already heard. You're working on doing small paintings to get it out there through Instagram to make the small mm -hmm. sale and get people aware. You're mm -hmm. entering um, national and I'm assuming also even international exhibitions. Is that right? Um, yeah. So you're painting for galleries. Yep. And you're working on commission work. Yeah. Is there anything else that you're doing? <laughs> Um, <laughs> parenting on the side. No, no I mean art-related. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, no, that's that's basically it. Okay. And I think one of one of the joys of being self-employed is that I get to choose what I do with my day, with my week, mm -hmm. with my month. You know, there's. I know, you know, I know some people are connected to galleries and that's a great thing but often they spend six months you know working with a gallery for a show and you know the art market's tough out there at the minute and some of them aren't getting the results but they've put six months work in mm -hmm. and now I don't have the six months work of uh, worth the seals to back up the rest of their year and to back up the rest of their practice so I think that even though mine might sound a bit hectic and it does have its hectic moments, um, I think it's important to keep keep things moving, keep it fresh, keep looking for opportunities and keep saying yes to things. How do you balance it, though? Because I get I get so overwhelmed because my mine is obviously broken up because I podcast. Um, mm. I teach. Uh, I also do well i stopped doing commissions i'm done doing commissions and then i do my own painting so as far as painting goes mine's actually quite simple i i just was doing commissions and then other other works but i wasn't doing the contest thing i wasn't doing the exhibition thing i wasn't doing any of that i probably should be doing that stuff but i'm not but even with the little bit that i'm doing splitting what was doing splitting commissions in my personal work sometimes it was really hard for me to figure out what to do in the morning. I'd feel guilty if I wasn't working on the commissions. And then when I'm working on the commissions, I feel guilty because I'm not working on the other stuff. Do you ever experience that? Oh yeah, absolutely. So how you do know, you do it's... it? How do you arrange your schedule so you're not constantly living in guilt for not doing the other three things? <laughs> um, I think that's just life though, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it that that constant that kind of push and pull. Um, you know, I was listening to your podcast with John Dalton mm -hmm. and I felt exhausted by the amount of things that you've been up to. And I just thought, oh, how does he manage it? So it's really funny that you send that right back to me. Yeah, um, well, yeah, it's hard. I'm not going to lie. But I but but, you know, from from your point of view, you know, you have the 
the work and you have the the funding you know you're making the sales and you know i presume through teaching that and the podcast you're you're able to fund your your life and yeah well the podcast doesn't really make any important. money just for the record <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> anyone who wants to donate please do <laughs> <laughs> but well you should do yeah absolutely um but yeah so you know you you do the things you want to do and then you do the things you have to do to make the money yeah and that's why i look at it and it's just about getting the balance right i think yeah there are times where it's completely manic and i just think what have i signed myself up for or i get into the habit because i'm quite a soft touch i say yeah i'll do that sure no problem or yeah you've got a charity thing yeah sure no worries i'll count me in and stuff and then i just add on to this this crazy list of things but i think that kind of chaos and that amount of work is what keeps it fresh and fun you know yeah. i think it sounds like we've got very different approaches you you know you paint large scale detailed work that is exceptional thank you over a long period of time and i don't think i've got the attention span for that i don't either so, i just suffer I like through it <laughs> <laughs> but i also i'm quite envious in a way though because i think that must be there must be a different kind of fulfillment to going into the studio and you know building that piece of work constructing it over a long period of time hmm. and i think that's that's something very special that that you have going on with your your work in practice but also yourself as a human being yeah i don't know that's, i'm envious of you thing. actually but you know we choose our own fate i could just I, I i could switch the way i work i don't have to work this way i i could uh, try your business plan but mm -hmm. i choose to work this way for a reason i don't really know why but it's funny that you should say that because on occasion i'll go plain air painting or i'll do a little portrait and for i don't know it's rare anymore because i've got all these big things to mm -hmm. do but and there is a fix it's like at the end of a three-hour portrait and you or a three-hour landscape painting you or even even a 20-hour painting you've you get a quick fix and it's like you get this relatively quick high but with a year-long painting it never looks good until like the last week after a year <laughs> so for an entire year you go home every day depressed because your painting still looks terrible and then by the by the end of the year it looks good, but it's been so long and you're so tired of it. It's anticlimactic. So there's no high. Mm. So, but the, here's where that I'm not feeling sorry for myself. Here's where the high comes when, when I look back a few years ahead and like, and I get to look at what I've done and go, yeah, I did that. Then there's a, that it's a different kind of a high, Yeah. but I love what you're doing. You know, I kind of envy that like these really cool relatively small portraits and i imagine that you get that fix fairly regularly yeah yeah <laughs> see see you've got it good that's amazing but then there's it's it's funny that we're comparing notes because i also feel that um i'm missing out sometimes i think you know maybe if i sat with that piece longer and you know worked it again and again and you know, considered it, but 
I just think naturally you find your own way of working. Right. And I like, I like to enjoy myself in the studio. Yeah. It's really, it's really selfish, but I like to enjoy myself in the studio. And I just think that, you know, I've been in quite a reflective mood of late. And I think near the end of last year, I was thinking, what am I, what am I painting and why am I painting it? And what do I want from it? What do I want from my time on this earth as well as in the studio? And, you know, so I've entered this year and I think um, everything's in a state of flux. You know, our house is being built. The world is crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, I've potentially got, you know, a lot of work on. And there's so many things that I want to do that I feel... I feel torn in so many different directions. And so within my practice, I've got ideas where about where I want to go. But I'm also thinking, you know, we moved to the countryside to have a massive garden and grow veggies. And, you know, I've got a workshop and all oh, this that stuff. Now and I think, yeah, I want to be out there as well. As yeah, in the that's distracting. But, you know, it's, yeah. But also there's joy to be found in other places. And I think... I don't like this idea of the tortured artist. I think, why bother? You know, if it's going to be painful, don't do it. Life's too short. Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. Not do you feel old, like you have a choice? Though? I mean, so, so can you honestly say that you don't feel you don't feel like a little bit of a tortured artist? Are you not? Oh, don't get me wrong. I mean, I can. You know, I think my wife would testify <laughs> testify to you know anytime. Like I've had a bit of a break over Christmas. And, you know, I go through the same things that, you know, I'll take the summer off with the kids and then the return to the studio in September. I'm like, oh, I can't remember how to paint, you know, and go through this whole big crisis. And she's like, really, this happens every time. This is nothing new, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen I've seen this before, you know, and I think. Yeah, there is a bit of angst, but I also ref have been reflecting on the past year and I just think, you know, I should be dancing barefoot that the hand of tragedy has passed me by for another year. And I just think I can't really be whinging about the fact that I might have to f paint a few paintings or I might get into an exhibition I really like. Boo-hoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so true. It, it that that feels really logical, and then, and then somehow, at least I tend to get into that mm. tragic state again every now and then, without mm. which is outside of my control. It feels outside of my control, but mm. well, because you just said to me, this is the tortured artist soul, where every year or every month or even every day, you ask yourself what you just said. What am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my time? What am I doing with my painting? To me, that's the tortured artist. Because yeah. you can't, most of us are never just satisfied just having fun. Because, because then, because you always follow it up with, yeah, but am I doing anything relevant? Is it, mm. am, am I, am I doing anything meaningful? Is this even worth my time? I mean, I'm assuming that's what you're talking about to mm. some degree. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, that's the tortured think, artist part. Yeah. But then, you know, you just think you've got to catch yourself on after a while. You know, I spent 
a good two months at the end of last year just thinking nobody takes me seriously and <laughs> then you, you get to the end of the year and you just think to grab you know just shake it loose what's wrong with you woman you know it's it's about i don't know i, I find that and it's very easy to slip into that but i find that usually whenever i head down the let's wallow path life just sends me like a, a little a little um excuse me look over here are you really going to complain when this is going on are you really going to be so so traumatized by something that you actually love doing and you're actually blessed to have the opportunity to do mm -hmm. that you're going to complain about it and yeah you know this reminds me of a conversation I just had with my wife this morning where we were talking about a couple that we know who on Instagram, and this is such a problem nowadays because of Instagram, on Instagram, their life just looks perfect. These are people who we're relatively close to, but they live across mm. the country. So we don't really, it's hard to know what's real, right? Just through Instagram. But mm. when you see their Instagram account, it's vacations and family parties and everyone's always smiling and hugging and there's it's birthdays and everyone always looks beautiful. And it's like, you look at them and it's like they have the perfect life and perfect family. And my wife and I were talking about that. Mostly she was. And I, and I thought, yeah, it'd be nice to do some of the vacations they've done. But then it occurred to me, this guy works in an office from nine to five, it's five days a week. And he's only, he's not photographing yeah. those moments. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like I get to stand are... in my studio in front of an easel yeah. every single day and do what I love to do every day. Boo hoo, I didn't go on that vacation. <laughs> <laughs> but, you yeah. know, it's, it's that whole thing, isn't it? That people go, oh, you know, well-deserved and everything's working out for you and you just think there was one year I actually just posted the full list of rejections that I had you know the seals that didn't happen and it's like why am I going to tell you this on Instagram whenever it's a of course it's you a don't competitive feed yeah nobody's going to turn up and go never guess what happened to me this really awful year you know it's People aren't going to be interested. So you always put your best foot forward. And I think it's damaging in some respects because, yeah, you are thinking that everybody else's life is so much happier than yours. Um, and that's when you need to come off it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could you imagine? But do you not, do ahead. you not find though that even with, you know, we're talking about the tortured artist thing. And I think part of that feeds into the, maybe, I know it feeds into my practice. There are certain little cycles and processes within it, and mm -hmm. not all of them are healthy or good or worthwhile, but you find yourself getting in those little spaces. And that's okay. That's part of being human. But do you not, more often than not, do you not just catch yourself and just think, this is damn good? Mm -hmm. You mean the work that you're doing? Do you not yeah. Yeah. Do you not have those little moments of absolute glee where you just think, yes. Yeah, sometimes. 
You know, I mean, you must have the opposite as well. Not to not to keep dragging you down into the dark abyss of artistry, but <laughs> but I mean, for me, it's yeah. For me, for me, it's uh, it's this weird dichotomy where I have this endless confidence, where like, mm. if that guy can do it or that woman can do it, I can do it. But at mm. the same time, I like everyone's work better than mine. Mm. It's this weird contradiction where you are really insecure that everyone's is better than yours and you wish you painted like Mary, John and Joe. And yet I feel like, yeah, I can paint good. I'm a mm. good painter. It's a weird contradiction. So yes, I do have those moments like, oh yeah, I can paint pretty well. But it's rare that I have a moment where I love the way I paint. Like where mm. it's like, I'm the, I'm like the bee's knees. I'm a rock star. It, that just, that I don't feel very often. Do you get to that place? No. Okay. Because <laughs> that's what I thought you were saying. I'm like, oh man, I'm so jealous. Very rarely. No, I'm kind of <laughs> racked with, you know, self-doubt, torture. Yeah. Everybody else is better than me. You know, I was looking at your work thinking, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I mean? No, and I'm, I look the same. I, yeah, when I look yeah. at your work, I think the same thing. So, you know, we're all messed up in the head. But, but you got to find joy in the process. Though. Yeah. 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 That's true. And like I said, with that whole Instagram thing, it's just to be able to get up in the morning mm. and do something that you want to do, even if it's a struggle, it's such a blessing. Um, mm. I think so anyway. Okay. So I've been dying to look at your work. So let's start with, let's start looking at your work. Okay. So I'll pull up on the one... back of that conversation. Now you do this. <laughs> no, no one's gonna Thanks. be no one's gonna be unimpressed with your work, I guarantee it. Okay, so this one is one you posted recently, and it might be mm. the one that was like, okay, I need to I need to go because you've been on my list for a while. I have this long list of artists. There are there's eight billion people in the world. So there are a lot of good artists, great artists. So I've got this long list and you've been on it. But when I saw this one, I'm like, all right, it's time to give her a call or give her a message. But this is freaking amazing. I love the paint quality on this thing. And uh, I kind of don't even know what to ask, except for that, that question that I kind of don't even like, but I, I, I feel like I need to ask it. What are, your, what are your influences? How did you come across this way of painting where you've got this kind of broken stroke and these really dynamic broken edges and... and uh, I don't know how else to describe it. It's sort of gritty and raw and yet refined and has volume and form at the same time. Anyway, maybe you could comment on that. That's a pretty wide open question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think I've, I've talked in podcasts before about um, my approach. And this is a, a guy, Spencer, who there's a, a group on Telegram uh, the Kenyo group, and they post reference photographs for other artists to use. Mm -hmm. Most of them are artists themselves. Um, and I'd had this one sitting in the bank for a while, and I just, I just loved the pose. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, so I've got to do something with this. This is huge compared to my usual scale. So this is fifty by fifty centimeters, and so that it was is. Wait, two and a half centimeters per inch. So what is that like, twenty like inches or 25, something? Twenty-five, yeah, roughly, yeah. Okay. 
Um, so, you know, again, really small scale compared to, <laughs> compared yeah. to your work, you know, the 10 foot pieces. And yeah, so this was only the second time I'd worked on this scale. And I'd been thinking about it so much. And I wanted to, I usually work with, um, with kind of keywords. So I knew that I wanted to experiment with layers that I wanted to look at edges, you know, the hard edge, soft edge, kind of those disrupted elements of the picture um, and work through a process of, you know, addition and subtraction. So, you know, half of the painting went at one point and then you kind of build up, but everything that you've painted before leaves traces. So hmm. it's all, it's all still part of the, the process and the final result. Um, yeah, so I threw everything up this one and yeah, hmm. it was fun to paint until I got to the shirt. <laughs> well, and this, I wanted to ask about this shirt. You know what it reminds me of is a Native American, I don't even know what you'd call it, but some kind of Native American costume or something. I don't, I, I doubt that's what you mm. intended, but so mm. it kind of feels like it's, it's really interesting, but I also want to point out for those who haven't read it, that this one in the final 50 in the British art prize, congrats on that. So actually won third prize, which no is No way. Wow. Yeah, Congratulations. I know. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Well-deserved. It's really cool. So yeah. it almost feels like it could be painted in gouache or acrylic because there's not a lot of blending. It's a lot of broken stroke marks. There mm -hmm. is some blending, but it does have that feel of a faster drying medium in a way, which is one of the things I find really interesting about it. Is that just how you're applying the paint or are you letting it dry in between and building up layers? Um, the only area that uh, I kind of let dry and it was mainly just that I had to leave it and walk away for a while because it was, was driving me crazy is the, the whole shirt front, but everything else is, is a la prima. So really, you know, yeah because i i work into the surface lots so i drag the paint um and work into it with scalpels and, and different tools so i need that that ala prima wet surface to get the effects hmm. and you know i'll i'll go back and add certain elements on top of it maybe just little marks you know i like um whenever i first started getting into painting i worked from vintage photographs because I had a big collection and on vintage photographs, they have uh, scratch marks, you know, that have been maybe little hairs or fragments in the, the film yeah. during the processing, you know, bits get bleached or creased or, or worn, you know, the little photograph that would have been in a, you know, a suit pocket or in a wallet or whatever. And so these are the, the types of things that I try and, so that was painting. one of your main inspirations was the natural mm. uh what do you call it? imperfections in a old mm. photograph yeah no way and that yeah. is so cool and the, the the wear and tear you know you just think you know i've got pictures of my kids and my purse that have been in there for years as well and you know they've got a little crease or they've they've got the the little dents or little specks of dust and stuff get in and mm -hmm. dust in my purse, moths, all those kind of things. But you just think, 
the vintage photographs because they, I mean, they were kept and prized because that type of imagery wasn't as disposable as it is now, you know, mm -hmm. click on the phone and you're just like, yeah, that wasn't good. Or somebody had their eyes shut and it gets deleted. But given the, the medium and the expense of the medium, especially in the, you know, early days, they were really prized and kept for decades. And there's something really nice about the quality of them. And that's what I wanted to try and get into the, the paint surface. I also, mm. whenever I, whenever I transition from sculpture into painting, there's something about sculpture that it actually takes up a physical space in a room, you know, you have a different relationship with it. And with painting, I used to think that it was a bit boring. And so, you know, it was a static surface. And what I want to try and do within the surface of, of my work is to create an energy and movement to have it looking fresh that, you know, it's not, it's well painted, but it's not labored over that it still has some energy and dynamism to it. And yeah, yeah, that's exactly so that's what, what draws me to it. So I see even little places like right here, it's almost like you dripped paint on it. Are you doing that kind of thing too? So yeah, there's, there was a guy, Connor Harrington and I saw his exhibition many, many years ago and I looked at his surface. I really hate those paintings where people just think the background is blue and so get one big brush and right. one color of blue. And so within mine, based on Connor's work, it, it, it can, it's always stuck with me for all these years, is that every inch of the surface doesn't have to be busy, but it has to work, it has to contribute to the overall painting. So what is the worth of that inch by inch, mm. you know, square? And so I do things like just scratch into it, or I've been introducing colored pencil just to have uh, a different kind of texture and colored edge. There are drips and scrapes. And as I said, I threw everything at this painting. Wow. Almost literally fun. throwing stuff at the painting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so are you familiar with Kwong Ho? No, no. Oh, you got it. I also interviewed him. Guy's brilliant. Mm -hmm his wife adrian stein who i also interviewed she calls him the fastest painter in the west he's uh i think he's vietnamese artist he i mean he's american now but he came here when he was a kid and his he did this presentation once at the portrait society of america where he talked about how a painting for him is successful if you could zoom in to every inch of the painting and you get a little square abstract painting in every inch. And it, yeah. when you were talking about that plain blue background, that's what that reminded me of. And as I'm looking at your paintings, I'm trying to imagine, you know, what if I just cut this section out right here? Yeah, that's a abstract painting. That's kind of interesting. Or this section right here. So I think that's kind of what you're getting at is that the mm. surface is as important as the imagery. Yeah. 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 It's all, you know, all got to work together. 
Oh, I'll definitely check his podcast out. Yeah, he's yeah. incredible. All right, here's a, I'm going to pull out a few more of my favorites. This one's also, maybe maybe it's just cats I like. Let's skip the cat for now. We'll come back to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, is this Warhol? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, it's written right here. Yeah, again, gorgeous brushwork. What the heck is this? I love it. Never would have thought to do something like that. What are you stamping it with something? What are these little circles? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so they're... Um... No, the little tubes that cover the tip of your paintbrush stop at bending. Are you serious? So, yeah, I've got a studio full of so many bits of junk because I just think, well, what happens if you scrape it with that or you drag that, you know? That's awesome. <laughs> so I've got I never so would many think bits to do something like that. About. Hmm. And then, so that area was, that area was painted with, you know, not just, you know, it might look brown, but actually there were reds and blues and everything else in there. And mm -hmm. then scrape back. And then I think, yeah, I think I probably had like kitchen roller rag and press that on top again. So it kind of lifts out certain areas again. So it's about that process of reduction. So rather than having that solid area of color, you let the residues Mm -hmm. of what you've painted show through yeah i can't this it. area right in here is so interesting the the just the beautiful arrangement of color even just this area right here is just uh, i don't know why i'm getting all giddy over that <laughs> it's really cool these little little yellow splash little pink one total total I'm totally uh, nerding out. Only artists would nerd out about something like that. <laughs> but then the face but, is painted so beautifully. I love the soft edges on the lips. So what's nice about your work is you have that, you have a lot of academic chops. And then you also are a contemporary, a modern painter, and you have modern aesthetics. That's hard for a lot of academic painters. And I'm speaking mm -hmm. for myself on some level. You know, it's, you're mixing two big strengths together well it's very flattering indeed but i think it also depends on your your approach doesn't it you know yeah. it's for me this this has to be this has to be an enjoyable process and i have to to get something out of it i'm just smiling because those areas are to make up for the disappointment of having to paint a neck is there anything more boring than painting a neck? That is so true. So true. <laughs> You're the only, you, I, I've, I've thought that so many times. I've never heard it said. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing there. Maybe if you get a good Adam's apple every now and then, something to render. You got an okay Adam's apple right there, but, or some yeah. good wrinkles on an older person, maybe some good waddles, you know? <laughs> But other than that, forget about it. <laughs> but also it's about moving your eye around the surface, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So that's why I think the little flecks of color are, they can keep your eye moving around. You, you know, we all know the, how to structure a painting to, you know, the, the classical structures, the tried and tested methods, but also it's, just those little marks and flecks of color or 
changing the edge, you know, even like the, the top of his head. Yeah. So there's slightly harder edges than places. And then it just goes all soft, you mm -hmm. know, and, and blurry until you get back to the harder, harder edge, you know, or even that that bit as well on um, his jawline. Just not getting that? right Over up here. To... Yeah. Mm -hmm. That bit. Yeah. See the way there's just a little bit of white. Right. So that's just where I haven't painted up to it. That just needed that. That's funny you that should mention that because I was also silently geeking out about that decision too. Because that's not, it's that, that's it. That is what separates an academic from an artist. Making decisions that aren't necessarily predictable. They're not part of the academic process. They're not part of creating a form or creating an image they're or creating a, or replicating an image they're just simply design aesthetics taste where it's just like oh there needs to be a little white spot right there i was totally geeking out over that yeah i have this conversation with my daughter all the time and you know she likes drawing and you know is very creative and you know very good for her age but there's something about i always say to her that's your artist's eye you know, whenever she looks at something or does something a certain way, I'll say not everybody sees that. Mm -mm. That's your artist's eye. And she she does have it. And it's not until you kind of see it in someone else that you think it is a certain way of seeing. And I could have painted right up to the that that side of the, the face. But for me, that wasn't right. It wouldn't have looked right that needed that little bit of space around it. Do you think that's innate or can the artist's eye, as you put it, be taught? Oh, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I just think the practice of art should be for everybody mm -hmm. because I think it is a joyful and rewarding experience when it's gone well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, it's something that everybody should have the opportunity to get involved in. But I think there are certain things that you either, that you have or you don't. And also, yeah, that's tricky though, because I think actually I spend so many hours in the studio, people always say, oh, you know, how did you learn to do that? And it's like, well, if you go to the studio, five days a week, you know, year in, year out for 10 years, then you'll discover something as well. You know, you'll develop a shorthand or a way of looking, um, your own visual language. And so I think from that, yeah, it's tricky though. I'm going to contradict myself on the space of one sentence, but I think sometimes you either have it or you don't. And then at other times, you can develop a language that maybe holds something different. Yeah. Is that sitting on the fence enough for you? No, you're, you're exactly where I am. And that is confused about it. <laughs> At least that's what I'm getting from you. You're, I mean, because it is complex. So I've been teaching for 22 years, 22 years this year privately. Mm. And I've had so many students and they're, 
I don't care what anyone says, and it coincidentally, this came up in the last podcast too, so it might get redundant, but I don't care what anyone says, there is such a thing as talent. I mean, after teaching 22 years, there are people that get it quickly and there are people that it's just hard for them. It's just really hard. Now, that's not to say that not anyone can learn it, but there are some people mm -hmm. that it just comes, that, that painting, I'm not talking about the artist's eye yet, but just painting, just, just mm -hmm. all of the things that go into making art come easy. And that's what I define mm -hmm. as talent, where it just comes easier for that person. So can other people learn it? Of course. But the artist's eye, is a, to me, is a different thing. And I've said this on the podcast before, but I'll say it to you. When I was a kid, my dad could build anything. I mean, I learned how to use tools from my dad. He's got an engineering brain that's brilliant. But everything he built, I could tell from a little kid that he didn't, I, I just remember like it was yesterday starting to realize that my dad didn't have a sense of aesthetics that was terribly strong. Like everything was beautifully built. The finish was perfect. Mm -hmm. Like the joinery was perfect. It was so well built. It would never fall apart, never come up. I mean, he's brilliant, but it was always mm -hmm. a little off in its design, <laughs> balance, color choices proportion yeah. you know what i mean and even as a little kid I, I remember thinking there's something wrong with his sense of design proportion you know and i would mm -hmm. i would ask him about it on occasion respectfully like dad are you sure this is supposed to be that way and at that point it occurred to me that there is something about there is a genetic component to it mm -hmm. but then i've also seen students learn it but i don't mm -hmm. never been able to maybe this is says more about my weakness than my students weakness but i've never been able to figure out a way to teach an artist eye you can teach formulas you can teach principles of design mm -hmm. but to but but what principle design is gonna say leave a little white space right there what what principle <laughs> like give me a, i mean there is no such principle what principle is going to say put a spattering of little scratches on the side here there's no mm -hmm. there's no principle and so I've never been able to teach it, but I have seen my, I have seen some students come with it and it comes easily and their paintings are great really early on. And then I've seen people slowly acquire somewhat of an artistic eye. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, I, I don't know, but I think it can be learned, but some people just have it and they have it in spades and it just gets stronger with time. And uh, that's my feeling on it. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, isn't it? It's 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 hard to pinpoint what exactly it is. But even you, as a twelve-year-old, knew that something was off, even if you even if you wouldn't necessarily have been able to have broken it down and described exactly what was off so that it could be remedied you you just still knew that it was off right i think but do you not find let's sidetrack a little bit do you not find that things like that um you have that view on things in, in life in general that you will spot things or you will notice things that other people won't i do know this and i think it's connected i am personally consumed with my surroundings always being beautiful and 
aesthetically inspiring. So if I'm sitting in my backyard and there is chaos that's not attractive in front of me, maybe, maybe my son brought in the garbage cans and he put them away in some stupid position that is so un, such an eyesore, my wife can just sit and relax. I can't. I can't relax. Um, and she just sits there and she's like, just leave the garbage cans. I'm like, I can't. I got to fix the garbage cans. I mean, we could have guests over and I'm going over there right in the middle of a conversation. I, got, I just noticed the garbage can. I got to go fix the garbage cans. It's like an obsession. <laughs> and I think that there is a type, I don't know, this might be my narcissism and thinking that maybe that's unique to me and maybe I just, it's more anxiety than noticing. But I think that people who are, there are pe certain types of people who literally find peace and happiness in visual stimulation. There are certain people that visual stimulation is what drives them. It's like the, it's, it's like the energy that makes them function from day to day. And I feel like that's my curse in a way that everything has to be just right or I can't function properly. And it carries into my work because of course, it needs to be just right. It needs to be designed well. It needs, in my opinion, of course, it needs to be stimulating visually, not just a picture of something. So, well, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Is that crazy out in left field? <laughs> you know what? I'm just glad you said it first because that's exactly the route that I was going to go down. Oh, I think, really? Um, you were just a, a lot more eloquent than <laughs> I was going to be. But yeah, I was just going to set as a blessing on the curse and, you know, seeing the little things and, you know, like I said, we're doing, renovating a house at the minute. And so I see all the things that are wrong. My wife's like, it's absolutely fine. What are you, what are you looking at now? And it's just like, can you not see that that runs off slightly or, you <laughs> yes. know, with a carpenter in and he has nail heads that he hasn't, you know, countersunk and knocked in properly. And I just think that's all I can see on the door. You know, yes, <laughs> I've got this beautiful door frame put in that we waited half a year to to be able to get to the point where we were doing that bit of DIY, and it's just like that's all I can see now. So yeah, I totally get the bins. <laughs> and do, do you think that's related to to this uh, personal? What did we call it? Uh, artistic eye. Do you think the mm. artistic eye is the same trait that makes you and I kind of? Uh, anxious crazy people when with our surroundings yes <laughs> you do think it's the same thing yeah i think so too all right let's go back to your work um <laughs> let's see so uh okay well, let's look at cats again another great one is this from the same reference photos yeah so um this was randy uh he was on the kenyu site as well and yeah it was just i don't know i was wanting to i was wanting to experiment a little bit more with introducing other elements into the paintings i think because i'd worked so heavily and this was this was quite a while ago so i think that actually it was maybe around the time that i was using the kenyo reference bank a bit more heavily because of I think it might have been pandemic time mm. um and actually so I, I enjoy working from photographs 
and I know it has its limitations, but I really enjoy all those little not with not, do you think it really and, has limitations though with the way you're working because you're parting so far from the photo that I feel I mean, like it, it, I mean what limitations does it really have I mean I don't mean to argue with you I'm just I know mm. that that is the go-to phrase and we all say it but mm. take first photography is so good now and secondly you depart from the photographic reference so much what what mm. do you perceive to be the limitations? I don't know. I think one of the limitations is that I think it comes from having a background in sculpture is that I can't just poke my head right and see how his nose actually sits on his face. Oh, fair enough. Or okay. yeah, you know the, those those little things that that give you an understanding of the shape that you're trying to paint. Mm -hmm. and I think so you paint more why... conceptually then you're not copying uh, copying is the wrong word you're not um observing and replicating shape patterns you're thinking more sculpturally and trying to understand forms when you're painting i think there's an element of that but i think also my work is really concerned with the surface mm. so how does the surface behave and what does the surface tell you about this, the actual shape of that lip or that chin? Right. Or, and how do you, you know, um, I haven't really painted animals before. And the idea of painting fur oof, wasn't that attractive to me. So it's like, I want to paint this cat because I liked, I liked this composition. I liked the expression. I'm, I'm, you know on both their their faces so how was i going to work that was i going to sit and tramp in every little wisp of fur no i was not mm -hmm. so how do i work that surface to describe the cat describe its fur describe how its its body is being held and so for me there's it all for me, it depends on what the challenge is, what the in, what the area of interest is, and for me, it's it wasn't about painting fur. It was conveying the idea of that animal mm -hmm. and its shape and its presence within that space. Well, you got you definitely made it look like well, look like fur. Maybe not the right way to put it, but it has that <laughs> fur quality to it. It feels different than his but, skin, for sure. But then that was another example of I'd been painting it. It was a, a lot more detailed and a, a lot more worked up than it is at the minute. And if you look close enough, you'll see that half of it has just been removed. I just scraped it off. Wait, where? Where has so it been you removed? Just left. Like, so oh, right here. If you're to. Yeah, yeah. So lots of that went, um, but also on the paw and leg that's sticking out. So that was just scraped back. Huh. So you yeah, just these left are, with so the there's traces. a lot of thin, thin paint on this, like a lot of down to the panel. Yeah. yeah I can see some impasto moments, but how often do you really build it up or don't you, or you, re you stay relatively thin? 
not so much. I mean, this one is particularly thin, mm. um, but I wanted that, um, that almost kind of bleached out look of a photograph, you know, of the, yeah. the kind of Polaroids. You captured um, that. I mean, but the image itself wasn't bleached out, but I'd been looking and thinking about Polaroids and think, what is the, what hmm. do, what do Polaroids offer that different photographs don't or that paintings don't? There's that funny color that you get, especially, you know, the seventies and eighties, the Polaroid, oh no. Yeah, seventies photographs, but it was probably more eighties, wasn't it? I think that was like the eighties. It wasn't the nineties for sure. I no, think it was no. like the eighties. Yeah. Mm. So that's one thing that you've said that I really find interesting because, you know, people have mixed feelings on working from photos. I went 14 years without working from photos because I wanted to, for various reasons, I wanted to push myself, challenge myself, try and see if I could do things if I were born 300 years earlier, just personal challenges, you know? And mm. um, that was it. It wasn't like photos are bad, so I'm not using them, nothing like that. And now I do use photos again, but I'm using photos mm. and I'm doing, you know, more classical type work. I'm mimicking, you know, I'm trying to mimic people like Rembrandt or Solomon J. Solomon and um, Waterhouse and things like that, or people like that. And, um, but I'm using modern, I guess Waterhouse doesn't really count because he used photography too, but I'm using modern techniques to do that. But on, you're doing what seems more pure in a way to me because you're using modern tech you're using modern tools not just to do the painting you're actually inspired by the modern tool you know your style is is literally being informed by old photographs and their scratches and dusts and imperfections and in this case polaroids so why wouldn't you paint from photos it's like it's your inspiration and it feels appropriate for some reason to me mm -hmm. to do that. Whereas mine, I'm mm -hmm. using a contemporary method to mimic the old masters. It doesn't feel quite as linear as what you're doing. I really like what you're doing. But also yours makes sense though. I mean, surely Rembrandt, if he had a camera and was able to, <laughs> you know, photograph his, his models and I, I don't know if you manipulate it on i don't know whatever on photoshop whatever packages yeah not much I mean, no not much so actually you could i think yours is a harder leap because you're taking something so you, you you're having like a, a reference image something to to work off but actually you have to employ so much artistic license imagination skill you know, all that information that you've stored up from looking at Rembrandts and studying them, never mind your your own kind of practical skills and the development they've had to go through over the years. That's that's a really big leap as as far mm -hmm. as I can see from taking that photograph to completely flipping the whole the whole process, the whole viewing experience on its head to create something else. Hmm. 
We it should do podcasts weekly because I'll just tell you how awesome you are and you can tell me what I'm doing is awesome and we'll just, uh, it'll on. help us get through our weeks. <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. That's nice of you. But sometimes, do you not just think, it sounds like, you know, you can develop your practice and find ways of working. And actually, sometimes you just get so close to them that you can't actually see what is interesting about it from from anyone else's point of view because you're just bang right up oh so close totally to feel it. that way where you i, but I if, think i understand if somebody else saying. was doing that you'd be like oh wow that's fantastic <laughs> well i get to a point and this goes to what we were saying earlier or what i was telling you earlier especially after a year on something or even close to that where you get so close to it that I'll have a show and show it in my studio and I'm looking at people staring at the painting and, and I'm so insecure about it because I'm so unbelievably bored of the image that I've become so accustomed to that I can't, I don't know if it's interesting or not. I can't get outside of my own mm. body and see it objectively. I'm not sure. I mean, I've, I planned for it to be, and I followed the plan. So I have, I trust that it might be. <laughs> so yes, I think that's what you're saying. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. But, but isn't that nice when everything's actually got a plan though? You know, yes. so much of my work, I actually look at it and I just think that's nothing like what I had hoped for. <laughs> yeah, but the way you, you know, work, it doesn't it sound like, like better, but it doesn't yeah. sound like planning is is appropriate for your process as much as it is for mine. True. <laughs> I, I mean, because I think if you planned the way I planned, it would be a disservice to your work. It, what, what is beautiful about your work is the spontaneity, the quick decisions, maybe not quick, but spontaneous decisions, the, the unexpected decisions. Uh, I, that's one of the things that makes it beautiful. I want to make one more comment about it. So I've done lots of portraits where I incorporate abstraction too. And what I really like about what you're doing that I don't feel like I've done as well is that when you are doing these abstract backgrounds, you're making very subtle decisions, just little, little changes in hue, little changes in value that take, that really, I mean, if you squint down, it's almost just a plain blue background, but it's not, it's still got a lot of interest to it. And I find it tempting when I'm doing something more abstract to be a little too garish and too loud in order to say, look what I'm doing. It's abstract and it's funky and it's cool. And it's, you know what I mean? Where you're, you're being controlled and reserved in this work. But sometimes it's those quieter moments where you get that, that satisfaction, you know, that's, that's why I look at it. There's some, there's some times within a painting that I just think, really like that little bit. You know, that bit really worked well. <laughs> and you, you, nobody else is going to see it on a little Instagram square. Yeah. But you can look at those bits and think, really like that. I must remember how I thought of that and how I made that happen within that painting you know you must you must get that yourself and, oh yeah but you look at the rest of the painting and you think oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely felt both of those things
Now this one, this one's really interesting because you really had to be reserved. I mean, you've basically eliminated color except for a few little splashes. Mm. I mean, to some degree, I guess I see su subtle temperature shifts here and there, but it's generally a black and white face. Mm. But then you've got just a few little splashes of color. What was your concept going into that? Was that the concept? I'm going to do a black and white face with just subtle color variation, or did you have something else in mind? Well, I'd been thinking about um, photographs again, and I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the work of Francis Bacon. Yeah. He uh, took lots of, well, of course, sorry, <laughs> no Francis Bacon, but he used to have uh, photographs and images in his studio. And so they had like the little, little thumb marks of color around the edges, maybe, or a little splatter of a bit of color that didn't necessarily relate to that photograph but it was just in the studio and in the firing line <laughs> of whatever yeah, okay. he was up to um and so i like that idea of little bits of color that maybe come from something else being part of something else while huh. this image was lying around I know it makes so much sense when you tell me what your inspiration is, but I never would have thought of it. So you literally mm -hmm. just saw a dirty photograph and you're painting a painting inspired by a dirty mm -hmm. photograph. Mm. And then photographers, um, whenever they're, whenever you get the contact sheet mm -hmm. and you're choosing which photograph you're going to work from. So lots of the times so there will just be a big X through what? ones that they're not going to work from. And you can faint, you can just about see it, but of, Put a big X through it. Yeah, you can totally right see through it. the center of the photograph. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god! But that was just something that I liked from something else, so I've kind of cobbled it all together, and huh. this one. That's it's really cool to hear where people get their inspiration. It's so varied. Mm. All right, I'm just gonna look at a couple more here. Oh, this one's really cool. So are these some of the ones that you sell? or inex relatively inexpensive in order to kind of get your name out there? Yeah, yeah, so they're really small. They'd fit into the palm of your hand, so they're five by 10 centimeters. Um, mm. And I I mean, working on that scale is really my happy place. Is it, really? There's, yeah, there's something about, so this would be painted in kind of one setting. So a, de a den studio from start to finish. Um, and I really like working on this scale because not only do you have to get all the information down about the skin, the shape of the nose, the texture of the the hair, all this kind of stuff, not only if you get that in such a small space and make it look good, you also then have to work the surface and give it energy and give it, bring it past the point of just being a painting of a photograph. Mm -hmm. So again, I bleached the bottom out. Remember how uh, photographs would look at the end of a strip? Sometimes you get that that bleaching at oh, the end yeah. of a, a roll, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and I like this. And I like the challenge of working on this scale because you have to be really decisive. And if you don't get it right, it really shows up 
because there's nowhere else to go. There's not a massive big background to put a vase of flowers or something, you know, or a scene in. You've just got, it is what it is mm -hmm. and you have to make that work. So I find that fun. Yeah, that scale looks like a lot of fun. I love these little hairs on his chin that kind of mm. look like they were done the same way that you did the scratches throughout the picture. Yeah, it's just a little scalpel bleed. Yeah. Very cool. Oh, here's another great one. This one's a little bit larger, I'm assuming. Yeah, so that's 15 by 20. So yeah, beautiful work. Well, this has been a blast. So if you've heard the podcast before, then you probably know what my final question is. And uh, that is, that is, what advice would you give an aspiring artist that, well, you said earlier, you never really, you wished you had advice. You didn't really get advice in college. So I was going to say that you had, but mm -hmm. that you wished you had. I just think it ties in a bit to that of being that tortured artist, doesn't it? I just think you need to do your thing. So get in and work. Um, even the days whenever you don't feel like working, just get in and do something, even if it's just tidying your space. But always be working. Um, always be looking. But if you don't have that self-belief, then just find other people who believe in you, hang around with them and fake it a little bit. Yeah. You know, I just think I spent too much time. I mean, I still do it now, you know, it's an active part of my day, not believing in myself not feeling confident about what you're working on. You know, we've covered this already, but all those things are, are, are part of my day. But if, if you don't believe in yourself, why would anybody else? So you've, you've got to find something that either you believe in or that other people can believe in, and then you can can ride off the back of that until you readjust your vision. That's good advice. Well, Ange, it's been a pleasure. As you know, I'm a huge fan, so it's an honor to get to know you a little bit better. Maybe someday, can't imagine I'll be in Ireland anytime soon, but if you're ever in the United States, I'd love to meet you someday in person. <laughs> well, it's been such a treat. I'm been deeply flattered. You know, my ego has been well and truly inflated. Thank you, <laughs> Same here. Thanks. But, um, <laughs> but I'm such a fan of your work. And now that I've discovered your podcast, well, you'll be keeping me company in the studio for quite a few hours to come. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends, and if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.